Hey, listeners, ever have trouble getting someone on the phone when you have a question about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person any time, day, or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. For years, I just dreaded going to the dentist. But at Advanced Dentistry, I don't have to. First and foremost, they want you to feel comfortable when you walk in. Like, you'll feel it. Whereas in the past, I might have gone into the dentist and thinking... I might feel some pain at some point, but with IV sedation, it can be something that you don't dread. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, you're not alone. Visit NoFearDentist.com to learn how IV sedation can change your life. There he is. Oh no, you, you. Oh, you. I'm like one of those actors that wants to be last to the set. So I, I needed to make sure, you know, you had arrived. I heard that about you. I heard it like banging on the trailer and God knows what you were doing in the trailer. I mean, uh, you know what I was doing. I think the world knows what you were doing. I, I think that ship has sailed. Yeah, that ship has sailed. Welcome to Literally with me, Rob Lowe. I'm so excited about this particular podcast. My guest is uh, someone I've known forever and ever and ever. We were um, competitors. We were peers. I've learned a ton from him. He's a master of drama and comedy, a great rock on tour, has a wonderful family, cares about the country deeply. Uh, I just one of one of my people that whenever I see in a room, just I just light up and I'm so glad to be around him. We have Alec Baldwin. My first memory of you and uh, us having a relationship was, and this will be surprising to you, uh, it was the 80s, and um, I had passed out on the beach. And um, I woke up, and it was you, sort of nudging me to wake up, and we had a nice little talk. I don't know why you would, it was, we were out on Broad Beach in Malibu. Zuma. Right? Were you living there? We had a great talk and you were, it was like a summer. You, did you have a house? I don't remember the auspices because, frankly, I don't remember much. I was shooting a movie, I recall. I was shooting a movie for quite a while, for, you know, back in the days when we used to shoot a movie for like three or four months. <laughs> yeah, for right. For like 12 or 15 weeks, I was shooting the yeah. movie Hunt for Red October and I was staying in Beechwood Canyon to be near Paramount because I would just drive down the road and I was right there on uh, Melrose at Paramount. So I rented a house near the studio, and on the weekends, I wanted to get as far from Hollywood and that that area as I could. So I drove, uh, you know, kind of uh, very dedicatedly, I drove out to Zuma. I used to meet Ali Sheedy. Yes, you were with Ali Sheedy. That's Allie correct. Ali had her condo there up on uh, near Zuma. Yeah, I went to Zuma like every weekend. It was so, it, that was such yeah. a great time. Ali was there, Emilio was there, Pat Riley, we'd all play beach volleyball and it was, it was, it was right. It was right towards the end of my drinking career. It was, and I was just kind of trying to figure it out. I remember that. And you had great advice to me as always. Now, where do you live in, in, on the beach? No, I live in Montecito. In so Montecito, I live up near my brother Billy's yeah. up there. Yeah. I used to see Billy. I love him so much. I, you know, I mean that I'm a fifth ball, 
How many Baldwins are there officially or even unofficially? Well, there are four. Uh, my brothers and, uh, and I are four in my family. Then all of us, uh, 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 I have uh, three sons. I uh, got remarried and got. I've had three boys in a row. We had a girl and three boys in a row. You're, I tell people that during hero. this quarantining, uh, I said, they ask what it's like out here. We're in East Hampton at our house lockdown. And I said, it's like the shining meets the little rascals here every day. <laughs> You're in the so, Overlook I, Hotel and the little rascals go running down the hallway with an ax in their hand. And then that's it. You know what I mean? Cut. So. I, I say the same. I, I, that, that's the exact quote I've been using. It's like the shining, but better weather because I'm in, in Montecito. How many kids do you have? I just have two and they're grown now. They're my, my oldest two sons. is. Yeah, two boys, and they're like men. One's, you know, uh, just t- t- passed the bar exam. and No. Yes. Where did he go undergrad? It? Where did he go? He, we, he did Duke undergrad. Wow. And, and then Loyola Law School uh, here in L.A. And, and he was just on the job hunt when all the coronavirus hit, so he's stressing about not having a job. What kind of, what kind of law does he want to practice? Uh, entertainment law. Okay. But really what he wants to do is use it the law degree as a tool to do something more entrepreneurial and not do, he doesn't want to be a traditional lawyer. He wants to use it as a springboard into something else, right. which and makes it son. a little more complicated. So my other son went to Stanford and then on in his summers, I know, right? So it's, right. I married a smart woman. So yeah. he, they got all her, awesome. her genetics. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and then on his, in his summers, he would intern um, for Ryan Murphy and Ryan offered him a job when he was done. And at the, we, as Kismet would have it, I started a show with Ryan. And so now he's right, and long story short, he's on the writing staff of uh, 911 Lone Star and wrote episode six last year that we did. And, you know, he's a, you know, he's a show creator, writer, you know, sometimes actor. He's doing his thing, man. Now where did they live or did they come home for the quarantine? Oh, they're back here. For quarantine, they're here. They're here. They came back. They came back it's to Montecito. Awesome. It's been so great. It, it's been, but I'm I, like you. I know you. You. You love your 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 brood. You're all over them. I'm the same. You know. I'm 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 very involved and always have been and always you know they're you know I try to strike that balance of I you know your kids shouldn't be your best friends because they need a father more than they need a best friend. They got plenty of best friends, but. That said, they're my best friends. Does that make sense? We, we, we really do have a tough task as fathers trying to walk that line. I know. What um, do you and your beautiful, amazing wife, who I have not yet met, but the reviews are in and they're stunning. Um, do you do you guys agree on par- like parenting stuff? Because Cheryl and I, I think the re- one of the reasons we've been married so long uh, is that we always agree 100% when it comes wow. to discipline, big decisions, whether it's, you know, ha- how structured to be, not so that always, we're just always on the same page. And there was no way of knowing that, by the way, when I married her. Um, but I, I can't see- can't predict. That's a good point. You can't predict what kind of a mom they'll be. And when you get a woman and you have kids, I mean, we had four kids in four and a half years and my wife is pregnant again. I right. just don't, I mean- yeah. Alec, you need to put it away. You need to, well, you need to like stop well, it. Well, 
No, but, but in all seriousness, I mean, I hit the jackpot as far as that concerned because I wind up having a lot of kids with a woman who's a great mom. But we do not always agree. I mean, my wife prevails, if you will, but we don't always agree because, I mean, I'm, I'm so much older than my wife. I mean, my, my goal- That's also I, true, right? Yeah, you have my, a different my, my goal wasn't to marry a much younger woman. I met a woman I fell in love with and she was a very unique person. And I, so uh, uh, I got married and we had all these kids. And listen, I come from a, from a time- my dad was a very tough guy, you know, and he would just look at you with that look, you know, and, and, and you thought, oh, you were like, oh, God, please don't hit me. Oh, please, no. You know, you were, we were terrified of my dad, terrified of my dad. He was a really tough guy. And with me, I mean, my wife lectures me more than my children. You know, my wife was like, don't look at them like that, Alec. Their look is not good. She's always lecturing <laughs> me. Don't glare at them. That's not helpful. And she wants to talk them through one kid smashes the other kid in the face with a toy. And my wife was like, no, what are you feeling that you wanted to hit him? What is What are you going through? And I'm like, it's a generational gap we have here, Rob Lowe. It's a generational gap. But you're, you're, that sounds amazing, though. I could have used more of that, too, because my wife and I are the same age. And so all of the stuff we're learning now later in life, like those kind of talk about your feelings. Yeah, we didn't really have so much of that. I mean, we talk about your feelings. My father, you know, was like, could you imagine saying, I can think to my father, like, could you imagine saying, talk about your feelings to my father? My father would have been like, you know, bang, you know, there, there's your feelings, right? How's that feel? How's, like, that, how's feel? that feel? How, how, how are your feelings now? What kind of feelings you have now? <laughs> Boom. But um, now your wife, who I met, obviously, eons ago, did she go back to work eventually? Or she not, not so, anymore? So this is, a good, this is a good little story. So my wife, Cheryl, um, was one of the top makeup artists in Hollywood and specialized, I would like to say, in handsome men. And one of her clients was Al Pacino and Mr. Alec Baldwin went on uh, on Glenn Gary. Yep. She was on that movie. Uh, and she had other really good actors, me, um, Kiefer Sutherland, and um, I took her off the market. Yeah. So then she uh, started a jewelry company, um, Cheryl Lowe designs and she's crushing it. And uh, she's great. I remember vividly the other thing I remember about many of our times together. I was came to visit for two days on Glengarry. You guys were shooting in Queens and it was it happened to be the two days you worked. And I got to watch you do always be closing. It's funny. My favorite story was your wife was in the room. I don't know if she remembers this. I doubt she does. But I'm in the room and it's me and Spacey. And somebody else and your wife was there and we're reading an article in the paper about a show, some kind of a play. And Kevin was saying how, oh, yeah, I'd like to go see that show. And that sounds like a really smart or clever show. It was something I don't remember the details. And Arkin walked in and we've been doing the scene. You know, we had rehearsed in the summer that we went to shoot the scene and it was not uh, a, a lot of fun. It wasn't uh, uh, Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein out there every day. It was really very tense. And Arkin comes walking into the makeup room and I said, you know, this play, I said, this sounds exactly like the kind of piece you would do. I mean, like the kind of play you would do when you were, you know, doing a lot of theater. And he literally snapped and he literally erupted and he literally, and he said this very kind of uh, uh, haiku like phrase. He literally said, he went, my God, out there. In here. And then he walked out. <laughs> he literally said, my God, out there, in here. And he stormed out. And we all looked at each other like, wow, 
Like, obviously, he was, like, carrying with him all the malice of doing the scene where I said horrible things to them. And when I did the off-camera for them, I said things that were 10 times worse. And uh, then eventually there's a knock at my door. I guess it was Steiner or uh, one of them where they had real dressing rooms. You know, you weren't in a trailer outside, and they knocked on the door. And I opened the door, and it's him. And he said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. He said, it's just that you're so awful out there. You're so awful. My God, you're so fucking horrible. It's hard. And I was like, I get it. I'm so sorry. God. Like, he really freaked out on me. And your wife was, like, sitting there, like, you know, like, cleaning some brushes, going, ooh. Oh, trying to make oh, yeah. this. When I came to visit, you could cut the tension with a knife. I mean, I remember, I remember all those guys were not happy campers. Yeah, they wanted to punch me. Ed Harris wanted to punch me right in the face. Ed Harris in particular. That Okay, so I'm not crazy because I remember Ed Harris being fucking livid. Livid. But you know and, as well as I do that, like, you look at text in a piece that you do. And I remember people would write scripts and they'd send me material. And I turned to the director, uh, uh, or especially we'd take care of it before. And I'd say, well, you know, the problem with the speech is I don't think that that person would talk to me that way. They're not playing any stakes. You don't walk in and just unzip your fly and piss all everybody's shoes and try to bully people around like that. I said, that's not life. People try to, you know, maybe we'll get there. Right, right, right. The only reason that in Glengarry it worked was because these guys were all desperate. Because the, as everybody knows, who knows the play, which won the Pulitzer Prize, that role that I played is not in the play. Right. And when I spoke to Mamet on the phone at the the beginning of that whole process, I said, you know, I figured you'd won the Pulitzer Prize. I would have figured the play was in pretty good shape. <laughs> you know, you didn't really have to change anything to shoot the movie. He said, well, no, no, no. He said, there's a gap I felt, which was that these men who were not criminals, they're not criminals. They have no criminal nature. They're just ordinary men. And they're going to commit a crime, some of them. They're going to commit a crime. And I need something to ratchet up the tension on them to turn them into criminals. And he said, and your character is going to come in and set the stage for that and put this undue pressure on them. And I was like, okay. So we went and did that. And it was uh, three days of me just really, you know, those guys did not want to have coffee with me. I remember sitting on an Apple box in the shadows watching it. And you should know my son, Johnny, the writer slash actor, he watches that speech on his iPhone probably once or twice a month. Uh, wrote a thesis on it. Oh, my God. Can quote it. He'll look at me on any given day and hit me with like a deep dive moment from it. Hit me That's with like Miller. You know, it's like Miller. You know, yeah. the condition of the American man, the breadwinner. You got to go out there. You got to make money and you measure yourself by your paycheck and you know, that that this is the Miller DNA seeping into Mammoth's oeuvre, you know, and, the, and Mammoth's cadences and so forth. But I always tell the same tired story, which is Jamie Foley. I, I had a tough time being mean to those guys. Here were guys who I loved. Al wasn't in the scene, obviously. He wasn't there. But Lemon, who I worshipped, and uh, and uh, 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 Ed and Spacey and, and Arkin and... Uh, and Jamie Foley, the director, said, remember that scene in Patton where he slaps the guy across the, uh, the head in the tent? Sure. And because he yep. thinks the guy's got shell shock. And, you know, it's like you call yourself a soldier. He said, it's the same thing here. He said, it's you call yourself a salesman. He said, you're going to crack these guys across the face, not because you're mean. It's for their own good. 
These guys are shell, shell-shocked. They're complacent. They don't realize how much trouble they're in. You've come in here to just go bang and to give them a nice cold bucket of water in the face for their own good. You're not doing it for any other reason but to help them. And the minute he said that to me, all the blood went like running into my balls. You know, I just got up and I went, I was like, Aah! you know, I went out there. And I was like, let's do it. You know, let's do it. Because prior to that, I was very uh, uptight. Let me ask you something. Um, among several, and I'm assuming maybe West Wing is one of them, what's been the t- some of the toughest parts you played acting-wise? What were some of the ones that were hard for you? Um, I The ones that are hard are also the ones that are so fun. It's like it's kind of like in, in Behind the Candelabra, I knew I was coming into a movie where, like, fucking those guys were teeing the fuck off, right? Just teeing off. I love that movie. It's such a, isn't it fun? It's such a fun movie. And and so I, I was like, okay, I'm competitive. I know you're competitive. Ensembles are the greatest. I love doing ensembles because of the fraternity and the teamwork and the discipline of playing your piece and letting others play their piece and knowing when to go low, where they go high and all of the stuff that we celebrate from, from doing ensemble work. But on the other side of it is like you don't want to get blown off the fucking screen either. No. It's so a tough, tough tightrope to walk. Right? So um I knew I was coming in to 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 I mean, Jesus Christ, my, Michael Douglas, one of my favorite movie star actors, and I and that's what he is. He's a movie star actor. Like his dad. Yeah, like his dad and 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 Matt, who has every club in the bag. I mean, just can play anything. Yeah. But that's one where I where I go, okay, I, so what can I do? And I there was nothing about the character really written in terms of how he looked or whatever. And I and I just knew that I had to do something to plant my flag. So I called Steven Soderbergh and said, you know, how wh- what's the bandwidth here? Like and you know, like how how big a swing would you tolerate? And he was like, swing away. I'll never forget. He said, swing away. And I was like, great. So I showed up with that look. And they liked it. <laughs> scored. You scored. scored. I, I'm going to go back and watch that movie. Not a lot of movies these days I'll watch again, but I'm going to watch that again. You know, Michael's dad obviously just died. and uh, He's he, my neighbor. He was my neighbor. I used to oh. see him. I used to see him all the time in Montecito up until the very end. The ni- most elegant, nicest man. You know, like you said, you know, uh, I'm going to write Michael a card. I just got, I, I knew where he lived, but I didn't want to write him at home. And I called his office to get the best address to write him. Because, you know, I run into them every now and then. And one time was at the U.S. Open. And, 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 and Michael was funny because Michael knows I love him and I admire him very deeply. And, yeah. uh, uh, um, and he was there with his wife and his father was sitting nearby. And, and Michael kind of like joked like, like I was being insincere that I was hugging him. He looked at me and he goes, Dad's over there. Like, I oh only wanted God, to talk to his so... dad. He went, dad's over there. So I walked over and sat down with his father for just like 10 minutes. And, you know, this is a guy who, I don't need to go into the whole list of films, but my God, what a great, I mean, there's movie stars. And then there's movie stars who are great stars. They're at the top of that world. And they were great actors, just great actors, you know. And he was a great actor. He was a great actor. And, and Michael's and then, a great actor, too. I think Michael's a great actor. And I don't always say that because there's like odd little films of, you know what I think he's great in is in Fatal Attraction. 
He's so great great in that movie because we and and he's and he's weak and he's a victim, and and he's unsympathetic and yet he still pulls you in, you know, with his acting. That's that's a great performance. I love that film. I was also um, on the set of Wall Street um, because I was shooting um, a movie called Masquerade in the Hamptons. So Masquerade was ahead of its time. I really liked the movie. It came out, it bombed, as as my movies were wont to do at a, at a certain point in uh, the 80s. And um, the writer said, fuck this. I'm not going to write movies anymore. I have an idea for a TV show I'm going to do in TV. Nobody wanted to do TV. That man's name was Dick Wolf, and he wrote his show, Law & Order. So I figure... I'm responsible for Dick Wolf making literally $2 billion. And I'm not owes getting you something. He owes you something. something. A little piece. I tanked it so he could go do that. But uh, now let me ask you this. You, uh, what, what's, a, what's a part uh, that you, what's a script you have that you've had in your pocket? And, and maybe you're too old now because, because I know this yeah. for myself. I've got like three or four words. I'm too old now. But what's one you always wanted to do that you, didn't, that you couldn't get off the ground? Name one. Boy. Well, there's one I actually wrote. And um, my dear, recently passed away, beloved buddy, Bill Paxton, the actor Bill Paxton, who I love, who I loved, gave it to James Cameron to read post-Titanic, right right as Jim had won Titanic. And he's like, God, buddy, you got to read this. God, Rob Lowe wrote a script, but I think you're going to love it. And James Cameron read it. And indeed loved it and wanted to make it. And I was going to direct at that time. And long story short, I got the West Wing a month later. And I have been on television every season since 1999. Well, now, how many seasons did you do West Wing? I did four. The Aaron Sorkin and I did four seasons together. And then we were gone, and then they did uh, four, five, six. They did another three, I believe. That you weren't there. Yeah, but you you wanted to be there when Sorkin was there. Who I mean, ran the show when Sorkin left? John, I, I think John Wells did. Wells, right, right, right. Yeah. Right. Now, you did, oh, of course. Okay, so the first time I ever was aware of Sorkin was a part I wanted that you got, you bastard, in the Nicole Kidman movie. In the movie Malice that Sorkin wrote, he, yeah. Yeah, he, he wrote that, right? The only reason they hired me and not you was they couldn't afford you. That was what Rob Reiner told me. They couldn't they didn't have enough money for you. They had a number. <laughs> they had a number. And they said, that's it. We don't have a fucking penny more than that number. Because <laughs> I saw the list on his desk, you know what I mean? And the little notes next to the names. And there was your name toward the top. And, you know, they, they couldn't afford you. I mean... <sighs> But I would have done that movie. God damn it. I would have done it for nothing. That's how I, I, I remember that, you know, your, that was your other great speech. The, the, the Dr. God speech, whatever. I am God. Was. My favorite I thing in that movie was the production staff would sit in the production office and I came in there to pick up something. I had to sign a piece of paper. Isn't it funny how we remember all these weird little moments of the movie? Yeah. And I, and yeah, I yeah. come into the production office. We were at Laird. We were at the old Laird. Laird. Oh, the God. Nobody calls that. Culver. I think- yeah, I remember it was called Laird when I shot Beetlejuice there. And then we did Malice <laughs> there. And we're doing the movie Malice at the old Culver Studios. And I walk into the production office. They said, oh, you got to come pick up a document or something. And a bunch of these uh, production interns were there gathered around a phone. And they were playing the voicemail of 
George C. Scott calling to say he wasn't coming in at the call time. And literally, they, they would look at me, they put their hand over their mouth, they go, shh, and they'd press boop on the voicemail, press <laughs> the number to play. And you could literally hear his voice go, ah, uh, it's George Scott calling. I'm told I've got a pickup time of 6 a.m. <laughs> and would you please tell Mr. Becker I haven't been in a car at 6 a.m. for 40 years. I don't intend to change that now. George Scott, I'll be in the car at 8. Click, and he hangs up. Oh, George Scott. dude. I should have I... saved that. I should have recorded that. Oh, so you could use it yourself. <laughs> that would have been my, I would have cut it up into my outgoing message. But I'm sure in that way that you must feel the same way. I mean, the people we got to work with. Oh, oh. my God. I remember, how about this? So I did a movie called Square Dance. It's another one I'm, I'm really am proud of that people don't really know. And it was a, like a real character part. And it was right after sort of St. Elmo's Fire about last night, the sort of when I, the male ingenue era. And it was with Jason Robards, who I adored, and uh, Jane Alexander, and our new discovery, Winona Ryder, mm-hmm. and who then left. I said, what are you doing after? She said, I'm doing this thing called Beetlejuice. I was like, Beetlejuice? Beetlejuice? What? That sounds awful. And the rest is history. She was great. She was great even then. The movie Beetlejuice was like, I was like, what are we doing here? What are well, we first doing? of all, what, what were you wearing? That outfit is really beyond belief. Had I known I was going to be wearing the same thing, I remember going into Tim Burton's office, I've told this many times, and Tim Burton was an illustrator. He would be drawing sketches on pads, and he'd be drawing like Charboy. He'd be drawing different <laughs> characters that were in the film, and he'd be sketching on a pad, and he really wouldn't even look at you. And I'd say, you know, uh, uh, Tim, uh, everyone's got a thing they're doing, like Len Shaddix and... Uh, 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 and um, Catherine O'Hara, Jeffrey Jones, uh, uh, Gina Keaton, obviously, has got all cylinders clicking here. I said, I feel like I don't really have much to play. I said, I want to become, I want to do like a Bob Cummings impersonation. <laughs> I want you to swear that I'm a gay man who's married to a woman, like we're antique collectors. I want to say all my lines like this. And be very kind of like plummy and very Connecticut and very like an antique collector. And I wanted to do something to play. And he's like looking down and he's like sketching. And he just, his eyes come up for a moment and he goes, no, don't do that. And then he went back to drawing this. (laughs) It's the only direction he gave me the whole fucking movie. He said, no, don't do that. And I, he killed my idea of my Robert Cummings impersonation. And I remember walking through that movie going, what am I, I got nothing. I got nothing. Because you talked about that line about giving and taking, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, that that is, and you know I love you. I'm your biggest fan fucking ever. That's a tough one because those people were teeing, like I said, they were oh, teeing key. off and you and you had the bad flannel fucking shirt. Yeah, yeah. It was like a sentence. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? A prison sentence, you know? <laughs> Hold that thought. We'll be right back. You know the only thing I ever let interrupt my podcast? My dog. Take a minute now, please. Pet your dog while you learn about Bark, the company dedicated to making dogs happy. 
every month, BarkBox designs and delivers a whole new collection of toys and treats just for your best bud. Every toy is tailored to your pup's size and play style. From squeaky plush toys from BarkBox to ultra-tough, durable ones from Super Chewer. Every treat is made with yummy, healthy, all-natural ingredients like pumpkin and sweet potato. Each box is inspired by a new theme and comes with fun surprises for you and your dog. For a limited time, they'll double your first box of goodies for free. I love making my dogs happy. Love it. It's my favorite thing in the world. And my dogs are obsessed with their chewable toys. BarkBox offers treats, keep my dogs healthy, and amazing new toys that keep my dogs entertained. To get your free upgrade, go to BarkBox.com slash Rob. So I came home to a little gift in my bathroom the other day from our friends at Harry's. To get what you want, you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. You know who challenged the status quo? Harry's. They saw customers getting ripped off by questionable products in the shaving industry and decided they had something better to offer. So instead of charging the same old ridiculous prices, Harry's found a way to make their beautifully designed razors, and they are beautiful, for a fraction of the price of the other big brands. Exceptional products, honest prices. That's Harry's. They have the highest customer satisfaction in shaving history and a no-risk trial. Don't like your shave? No worries. It's on them. Convenient subscription options that you can cancel at any time. And Harry's also has other self-care products that meet the same quality standards as their razors. Richly lathering, skin-softening body wash and scents like Redwood, Wildland, and Stone. And an extra high-quality, amazing-smelling deodorant for just five bucks. I love their stuff. I'm so impressed by Harry's products. All of it. It's all good. Don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash Rob. That's harrys.com slash Rob for a $3 trial set. I love fast cars, but there aren't a ton of high-performance EVs. They're certainly out here, there. But when I, when I get a chance to get behind the wheel of one, it's, I love it. And I was blown away by the Kia EV6 GT. When you get behind the wheel of the Kia, it, it is literally like being in a state-of-the-art rocket ship, but also comfortable. The thing goes from zero to 60 in 3.4 seconds. It is the premium driving experience. And of course, it's an EV. So the climate thanks you. SiriusXM provides access to over 165 channels in the vehicle. Music, sports, news, Comedy, Yacht Rock, let's go. Little little Steely Dan going in your Kia, come on now. So check it out today. It is the all-electric Kia EV6 GT. I had a blast checking it out. Believe me, you should do it yourself via kia.com slash EV6. To learn more, that is kia.com slash EV6. Kia, movement that inspires. Now, let's talk about politics. I have a very oh my unique God. I, well, I have a very unique perspective about you, and I mean this. I hope you think know that I'm being sincere when I say this. And you're one of the few people I know who not that I had an expectation that you would do this, 
But there's a certain kind of amalgam that people have to have in order, in my mind, to succeed at that. Not only just the charm and a kind of a, a um, you know, kind of a winning, uh, you know, forget about looks. You don't have to be a, a, a matinee idol to do this, but there has to be kind of a something engaging and something magnetic about them, which you obviously have that in spades. And there also has to be, as you said, the give and take. There's a kind of a, mm. you know, Strasbourg, Stanislavski, they always said, we're never 100% the character. We're always at a set of knobs and dials and switches adjusting what we're doing and watching what we're doing to make sure it's going off the right. way that we conceived it should be. And I think that there's nothing more so that, like that than politics for you to measure your performance. You're playing a role and you're trying to seduce people uh, within a certain kind of a, a prism. And I've always felt that was something that was yours for the taking. Did you ever, ever contemplate running or no? Seriously. Well, and, you, and, and, vice, and vice versa with you. Um, but I'm asking I you, did, see. Yeah, I know. Okay, so here's the thing. The answer is yes, very much so. And one of the few, and although we started the interview saying my wife and I agree on everything, <laughs> she always just pissed all over that idea. She hated the idea more than life itself, right. which made me rethink it. And then politics changed. Right. And, and, and that's really what, what did it is, is, is politics change in so many ways and, and very few of it good, you know. And the people that I was always drawn to, the consensus builders and the people who could reach across the aisle and the stories of like Tip O'Neill and Reagan battling and cursing each other and then going, having a whiskey and cutting a deal in the clo cloak rooms like that just doesn't exist anymore. And, and then the notion, cause I watched Arnold Schwarzenegger go through it with, with when he was governor, I've, I've been friendly with him for a long time. And I mean, he's not, I mean, he's a Republican in name only really. I mean, he's, you know, he, he has some, but he, in watching he, that process, it really bummed me out. It really, really did. And I feel bad about it because I go, that's what you don't want. You don't want people who have an affinity to, to go into that arena no longer wanting to go into that arena. But that's sort of where – I mean, what about you? You were well, – I, I mean, I know well, – I thought I you were right there. Well, I think it's always interesting what you just alluded to is it's always interesting when you have people who – there's some sacrifice involved in them doing this in terms of public service. Like the, the man and woman, I always say the same thing, which is the man – or a woman who seeks public office as a means of completing themselves. There's something missing in them. There's some aspiration they have. Politics is another link in a chain of these kind of uh, meritorious climbs they have. You get good grades in school and you do the SAT right. and you get into right. Harvard and you get into Harvard Law and you make the law review and you get into the top firm. And they're used to climbing this merit-based thing they're doing. And this is the next brass ring for them. For sure. And they under, and under no circumstances do they lay there. I always have the same kind of corny image. Under no circumstances do they lay in bed at night and their wife, they're tossing and turning and their wife says, honey, what's the matter, Bob? And he's like, well, I can't sleep because I, I just, God, I just can't stand the fact that we don't have enough money for the National Endowment for the Arts. It doesn't seem right. <laughs> it just doesn't. And you realize that for none of them today, that, that applies. None. 
none of them were losing sleep over anything other than their political power and their fundraising. And 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 for you and I, we grew up when there were men and some women, there were less women, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, where there's a real sacrifice. These are people who could be captains of industry and lining their pockets. And there's a lot of other more lucrative things they could be running. And instead, they stopped and they got off that train to come and help their country in the way they yeah. can. You know, and I've always admired that. And I always thought about doing that and for years. And my wife, uh, you and I had that in common. My wife said she would divorce me if I ran for office. So, What would you have run for? Probably governor of New York. Oh, that would have been Probably so Probably governor fun. of New York. I, I only say that because to be an executive, to go to Washington... And to commute to Washington as a member of Congress, which I would never do that, or, or as a senator, uh, that's um, uh, that's onerous for me now with my kids. I mean, my whole life now is about uh, jobs I take, jobs I don't take. There's things I do to make a living now that I never dreamed. You know, the people from ABC came to me to do Match Game, the, the, the game show. They said, right, we're going right, to pay, right. pay you X. They paid me an exorbitant amount of money, and we put it all in my foundation and gave it to charity because I'm always looking for sources of income that are non-traditional sources of income for me. I do X, and I make a living doing X, and then the rest of it is like money that you find in the sofa. You know, I'm going to go give it away. Right. So I do Match Game, and they come to me after the first year, and they said, wow, the numbers weren't bad. They, they, they were really pretty good. We were surprised. Would you do it again? And my wife was like pregnant with our second or third child. My wife was like, of course he will. And she like shoves me. <laughs> yes. She's like, he'll oh. be there tomorrow. He'll do 80 episodes. Oh, I had the same with um, <laughs> the Comedy Central came and said they wanted to roast. What? They, you got roast. Yeah. That's the other thing we have in common. Yeah. I think you might have been the roast right after me. And well, first of all, my wife was like, you're not doing it. Yeah. I said, what do you, what do you mean I'm not doing it? She's, she's first of all. I can't have you don't want to be the butt of the joke across the country. I said, honey, that ship has sailed. Right. And then she says, well, are they even going to pay you? And I said, yeah. And I told her how much it was. She says, oh, well, you have to do it. Right, 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 right. And just well, like my- that. So, so I loved it, by the way. I absolutely had the time of my life. Well, I hated it because the only, everybody was given some advice. Uh, actually, I did two roasts. Uh, Casey Patterson, who's a wonderful producer, asked me to do one for Spike TV. And that was a great honor. And that's a little bit more, this is your life. And, and De Niro came mm-hmm. and Clinton came. And I was like Amazing. in tears. I was so touched. And of all the people that came out there, uh, all of them have been kind of coached to take the edge off a little bit, you know, uh, 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 not go too far. And the only one who said, and some of them, like my wife, would say to the writers, well, I don't want to necessarily say that. They had their own filter to protect me. The only one who said verbatim, everything she was asked to say was my daughter, Ireland. You could tell oh, she was just, she just loved kicking my teeth out on national television. Oh, yeah. Uh- she loved every moment of it. Then when we come back and do the, the <laughs> roast roast, well, that was for Spike. Then Comedy Central I did because we, they gave me a million bucks for my charity. And I took half of that that they matched. They coughed up a half a million for Tony Bennett's school. We gave money to uh, Exploring the Arts, which is Tony's charity. 
we gave them a million bucks and my other half million, I threw in my foundation and gave it away to other people. So in that way that I'm always looking for these silly gigs to do for charity, um, I think the, the only thing that's left is for me to do the weather on Good Morning America now or some fucking thing. I don't know. but it's, You'd be so good. I think that would be great. I would like to, I would like to see that. You want to wake up every morning and have me do the weather, don't you? I do. Um, I'm no, gonna, let me ask you some cheesy questions. Here we go. Some cheesy Rob Lowe questions. But you've commandeered. You've comment. I know. See, I know what you're doing. You're Who knew this was going to happen? You don't invite you, me. I have my own podcast. You don't invite me on. You know I'm going to wrestle the microphone from you. Rob, you idiot. You knew this was going to happen. You, you idiot. In here? Out there? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Perfect. In here? Out there? My God. <laughs> Now, here we go. I'll pose this yes. to you the way they said to the to the North Vietnamese captives. When the soldiers got off the plane in America, the newscaster was very kind. He said, other than your wives and children, he didn't want to embarrass them. He said, other than your wives and children, what's the thing you missed most in captivity? Now, I'm going to say the same thing to you. Other than your wife, other yes. than your wife, and this has nothing to do with looks or sexuality, just in terms of that magical, that je ne sais quoi that happens. I mean, you're one of the great leading men in modern history. Who's the woman you kissed and you just felt it right down to your toes? Ooh. What actress did you kiss? And when it was over, you were like, wow, I didn't expect that at all. Oh, well, that the added, I didn't expect that at all. That's interesting because um, I, I did this. It would be two people, actually, probably, and, and not big names particularly, but I did a movie with Curtis Hansen. Mm-hmm. I think you did you work with Curtis? No, my ex wife did uh, LA Confidential. That's right. I knew there was some connection there. Um, what did you do with, with Curtis? Bad Influence. Right. And it was David Kep's script, me, James Spader. Right. Uh, and uh, the Lisa Zane, the actress, that was one. And I remember Curtis saying, why don't you guys kiss now so you can get it over with? Like, like we were just like, like at the craft service table. And we had a big kissing scene to do. And he was like holding a Cinnabon, whatever. And was like, you know, yeah, I think you should kiss now. By the way, that was also in the era where Curtis Hansen also said um, to these to two beautiful um, background artists who I was supposed to have a scene in bed with later that day naked. This is in the script. This is not something I want to do necessarily. No. I did, but I'm just saying I was just part of the job. You were ordered to do uh, it. I was ordered to do it. I was under strict orders from the studio. Um, Curtis said, why don't you guys take this bottle of champagne and go to your trailer and sort of get relaxed. Get acquainted. I had a director say that to me once. I was going to do a movie, which was a complete crazy, when I was much younger, a complete crazy I mean, I can say it because I think he's dead now. Phil Kaufman. Uh, oh, uh, wow. I, yeah, I was sure. going to do, do the movie Henry and June. And my, oh, mother, wow. and my mother had breast cancer. My mother got very sick, 1991. And he wanted me to go to Paris with Uma. And I forget the actress's name that played Anais Nin. And Uma played uh, 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 hmm. his wife, June. And I'd gone to the Henry Miller Museum in, uh, in um, Carmel or, or Big Sur to research. And basically, I said uh, in the 
in the films I saw of Miller, I said to vocal coaches, did he speak that way when he was even younger? Because he had a very raspy voice, very heavy New York accent. Miller, who had a very heavy New York accent and talked like this. He was from Brooklyn. He had a very raspy voice. They want me to do this movie. And uh, I couldn't go. And they got Fred Ward did it. And Because uh, um, I think of Fred Ward. Well, I think of the wonderful <laughs> young Alec Baldwin. I go right to Fred Ward. Those guys had their relationship from the uh, uh, from yeah, uh, the uh, right stuff from, from the right stuff. stuff, and so he goes and does that. But but he said he wanted me to go over to Europe and with Uma and this woman I forget her name, and he wanted us just to hang out and live the life for like a month of the characters. And I was like, you know, wow, you know, I really am a good now, son if I'm giving up on that to go take care of my mother who was very very sick. But uh, I'll never forget I did a sex scene in the well. Who was the other woman? Lisa Zane, and who's the other one? Um. Of all things, I, I did Masquerade with like Kim Cattrall at her height of young gorgeousness. I mean, the height, and 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 she was amazing. And and, and she rang your bell. And this was and this was in the era where like you were there were no what do they call modesty, fucking whatever's cod pieces and stuff. Yeah, I yeah. mean that in the eighties nobody did that. No, nobody did it. You no, were just, just naked. I did a movie once with Deborah Maloney who married Jimmy Farantino. She was a, a beautiful woman on soaps, and then she did movies. And she was Jimmy Farantino's wife. Her name is Jane, uh, Deborah Farantino. But I knew her when she was- Oh, De- oh yeah, she's famous. Fam- oh, she's- Deb Maloney, yeah, beautiful yes. brunette. And I did this movie, the movie Malice. And I have a scene where I'm having sex with the woman in the bedroom, and she's in bed, Nicole, with Bill Pullman, and she's supposed to hear us having sex. It's supposed to kind of agitate her that I'm having sex. I'm, I'm their boarder. I'm their guest in their house, and I've brought in a woman to have sex with me. And we start to do the scene, and it's very chaste, and I'm a little cautious, and we're all naked, and I know Deborah a little bit. And, you know, it's like, it's not, uh, uh, you know, we're not. We're not adult film stars here who know how to just get right to it. And Harold Becker, who oddly enough also had a very raspy voice and a New York accent, he comes in, he says, Alec, 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 she has to hear you in the other room while you're doing this. You've got to be fucking her head through the headboard. (laughs) He said, you've got to give this everything you've got. And she and I look at each other, we're like, Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> and then we just, uh, you know, we just uh, simulated our way through something. I went into a blackout. I don't remember. It's Isn't it amazing? Like the stuff that we have. And I would say the things we, we have then, to do it. The things we oh, did then that you don't do anymore. You don't do anymore. Well, here's my favorite. Whenever I got a script, uh, I would always, I'd read the first two or three pages. But then I would jump to page and always page 73. Do you know why? What was always, always on page 73? What is that? That was where inevitably they wanted me nude. Yeah. I feel so always. sorry for you, Rob. I feel so sorry for you. It's so sad. You know what I mean? Your life's been so, it's been really stressful, hasn't it? You know, to be you. It's, to go it's, through it's, life it's, and have all those pressures on you and the whole page 73 thing. It's sad. I feel bad. <laughs> so glad we had this chat because I, I, I wanted to remind myself of just how hard you've had it. <laughs> you know, page 73. Page 73. And we'll be right back after this. Did you know that it is Asian American Pacific Islanders Heritage Month? Macy's is highlighting some really cool AAPI-owned brands right now, like Cardin, 
Kaja, Amelia George, and Hamiv. Plus, you can help support college access and student success when you donate online or round up in-store to APIA Scholars. APIA is the nation's leading nonprofit organization devoted to the academic, personal, and professional success of Asian American, Native, Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander students. Shop Asian American and Pacific Islander-owned brands at Macy's.com or in-store. The weather is getting warmer. It's time to ditch the jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. But there's no need to waste money on clothes that only last one season with Quince. Now you can get high-quality pieces that never go out of style. You'll be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts for $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering with the top factories, Quince cuts out the middleman and passes the savings directly on to you. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. My producer recently made an order for Quince, and here's what he had to say. I'm really excited to revamp my closet with Quince. I cannot wait for my items to arrive from Quince. You know, I'm a sweater guy. I was looking at that burgundy cashmere crew neck. I love the blue chore jacket. Maybe I'll throw some joggers in there. So upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash Rob for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash Rob to get free shipping and 360 day returns. Quince.com slash Rob. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you've been listening to Literally long enough, you'll know that I am a big believer in getting the help you need. Therapy has been a big, big, big part of my life and something I think we should be all doing as needed, just like checking the oil on your car. I've spoken about this and we all carry around different stressors, big and small. We keep them bottled in and it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe place to get the things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist. And switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Rob Lowe today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Rob Lowe. Hit me. What, what's a, give me a burning question. Uh, Jesus, I have so many burning questions. Give me one. Um, uh, do, you, do you have a, a, a Jack Donaghy line that you love? Because I do. I have, I have my favorite line that you've said in that. Do you have one that you loved more than any? Um, the 30 rock, this is a 30 rock line, obviously. Well, a line is tough. I mean, we had a lot of good lines. I always remember when we would escort, uh, um, Carrie Fisher played a writer who was an old school writer who was trying to emphasize everything she said was to emphasize the heyday 
of the auteur writer and when the writers were important. And I look at her and I say, well, thank you so much for coming to see me. It was such a pleasure to see you. And I really look forward to working with you. And uh, really, let's get together again soon. Thank you so much. And I escort her out the door and I smile and I turn to, and as we close the door, I turn to Tina. I go, don't ever make me talk to a woman that age again. <laughs> and my, other favorite, my other favorite line was we're standing on the balcony. I have a glass of wine and we're looking out over the city of New York out of my special balcony. And Tina's behind me complaining about how she works too hard. And she says, you know, I'm getting older and all I do is work and I haven't met anybody. And, you know, time is ticking, whatever her dialogue was. And she says, you know, pretty soon no one's going to want to even see me naked. And I said, I, I, I kind of like just smirked. And I said, oh, please. I said, you make enough money, you pay people to look at you naked. That was my other favorite line. You pay people to look I, at you naked. I like uh, when Tina came into your office really early on and you were in a tuxedo. Yes. And and she said, she said, oh, I, do you have somewhere to go? And you said, no, it's after five o'clock. What am I, a farmer? It's after six. What am I, a farmer? Just, it's after six. six. What am I, a farmer? <laughs> How, um, so how much of it? Uh, okay, I, that's, that was All the next that's question. that's based on Lauren. Yeah, that's Lauren. That's Lauren. For sure, right? Oh, yeah, that's Lauren. Yeah, you know. You know. I, I, it's funny. I've done a bunch of these podcasts, and Lauren comes up in every yeah. single podcast. Yeah. Be, because I think, and, it's, and, and Sorkin is the same way. People who've worked with Aaron... Like he just occupy he occupies a, a space in your brain forever. They have to be these sort of legendary, but also really eccentric and quotable. That's well, the main well, thing. The, the thing quotable. about Sorkin was going to do, and NBC was going to do a live version of A Few Good Men, and they wanted me to play the Nicholson role, and they were going to get two young people to play, you know, two young stars, whether they were in the yep. NBC wheelhouse or not to play the Cruz role and the Demi role. And uh, Sorkin was going to update. He was going to do some slight modifications. This is what he told me over lunch. We had lunch uh, uh, in uh, with uh, with uh, Craig Zayden, the late Craig Zayden was the producer. No, of course. Who Wouldn't I Wouldn't give me Footloose. I, I never him. forgave him. Right. Blew my knee out on page right. uh, on uh, stage 24th, Footloose audition. Did a knee slide into Herb Ross's lap. They took me out on a stretcher. Well... Because you know it was on page 73 of that script, don't you? Oh, I do. Anyway, so uh, uh, so Craig Zayden, the late Craig Zayden, who I loved, him and Neil Marin, I loved uh, chatting mm-hmm. with them. And uh, they, they um, uh, Craig was producing, they were going to do Few Good Men for NBC, and the whole thing fell apart. But I was very excited by the chance of working with Sorkin well, again. Well, I'll tell you, I after The West Wing, um, you know, it was not a great ending for any of us, my exit from the show, but I loved Aaron so much. And and Aaron's very much like the withholding father. So you want his approval. And, and I will, I I will suffer any bad behavior from anyone. If they're a genius, unfortunately, like, I just like, if if you're going to write me good shit, I don't, I just, you're in forever. So we had a rapprochement and we did a few good men in the West End together, Aaron and I, he rewrote it because it was during um, the Guantanamo Bay, uh, you know, prisoner issue. And the, as you know, the play takes place in Guantanamo Bay. Yes. Uh, um, so we spent six months, six months in London, and I played Kathy, 
And I have to tell you, it was the highlight of my life. It, that what year was that? Play. Uh, I want to say it was it was 2007. That's the last play you did? Yeah. yeah. Did I mean, we did 260 performances. Wow. You lived in London. Lived in London. What theater? It was what theater? The Haymarket. Oh, my God. How lovely. Who else was in the cast with you? Uh, they were all English English folk. <laughs> Good answer, Rob. Good answer. So they were English all, folk? you know, English folk. You know, they were English people. They were actors, you know, from, from England, you know. Well, the one, the person you would probably know was, was John Barrowman, who was in Mr. Who, Doctor Who. Um, and he played the uh, Kevin Bacon part. Here's what's interesting, because you've done a ton of theater. Um, I remember in rehearsal, and we're just about, well, this is right before opening night. And by the way, there is no opening night there. Uh, well, there is an opening night there. That, on opening night, every critic comes on opening night. On Broadway, they can come anytime through previews. Yes. You don't know when they're there. Yes. Opening night in England is for real opening night. Yeah, for the which press is, as well. Which it adds a tremendous amount of pressure. And I, I chose that night to go up. There was a moment we had never really worked in rehearsal and it worked opening night and it crushed. And I got took my eye off the ball for a minute. And the next thing I knew, I was doing a cross-examination and I looked and the other actor's eyes were huge. And I thought, well, that's, I've, that's an interesting choice. I haven't seen that before. And I realized I had jumped two and a half pages. <laughs> and the the two and a half pages is all stories, story details. So I, I realized what I'd done. And this is, you know, years of doing what we do. You finally, this is why we do what we do for so long is you know what to do. And I thought, I got to figure this out. But if I commit to thinking, no one will be the fucking wiser. So I walked away from the, from the, uh, the witness stand. It took the slowest, longest, most deliberate walk right down center. And looked out at the audience for as long as I possibly could. So long that it couldn't have been a mistake. Figured it out. Went back and did it. No one said a fucking thing. We got great reviews. And Sorkin didn't even know. Was he drunk? Well, he had gone out to smoke. Yeah, he had gone. You'd gone downstage for like a 10 minute take. Yeah. and Nobody noticed. He, he, he had gone out to, a, to have, to have a smoke, but he's the, you would crush in that. Oh, so anyway, the, the English audiences are so much different than American. They listen, they, you can hear them listening yeah. and they don't crinkle their crinkly cracklies or eat yeah. or drink. Not once did a it's phone a go off. Not, it's a religion. Not, yeah. Not once did a phone go off. Not once. Yeah. Not once did anybody sleep or talk. Not once. But on the other side of it, 260 performances, we probably got eight standing ovations. If we'd have done that show on Broadway, yeah. we, would have had a, we would have multiple standing ovations multiple times I did the, every I, show. I did Lyle Kessler's play Orphans was the last thing I did on Broadway in 2013. And a play I loved, and we had a very disastrous run. You know, Shia LaBeouf came and got fired and all this craziness. And it was really uh, debilitating, but but I'll never forget how, I mean, maybe Broadway is a little flappy that way, but we got a standing ovation every night. Every night. Every night. Every oh, night. No, no. The, and listen, this is taking nothing away from your acting, which is tremendous, but I have seen Broadway uh, audiences 
applaud scenery changes. Right, 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 right. Now, here's my last question for you, because I got to go take my kids to the horse farm next door. Here we go. Ready? I love it. Not only not only has he taken over the show, you're now taking it upon yourself to wrap the show yeah, up. I'm gonna wrap, we're going to wrap now, Rob. You, if you, but see, okay, Rob, sure. it's, 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 right. it's, 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 I'm more aware Out of Out there? In here? Your men are in the booth right now. They're going like this. They're going like, like the old TV studios. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like the old David yeah, exactly. So your greatest starstruck moment, a person you worked with, a person you, oh. you were like, oh, my God. Who? I had... I got um, you got a two few. Very Give quickly. me a couple. Um, Sheen. Well, no, the, the starstruck moment. Uh, I think the two. One is um, going to my uh, my uh, seventh grade, yeah, tenth grade, tenth grade. Let's say tenth grade. Crush's house in Beverly Hills to watch my after school special, which is going to be on the air. She's the most beautiful girl in the school. I used that as a as an excuse to power me to go and ask her out. She was I was punching way above my league, and she said, "Come to my house, my my dad's house. I'm going to be there over the weekend, and he's an actor, and we'll watch it together." And I drove to Beverly Hills. It was the first time I'd ever seen a mansion, and I got out and I knocked on the door, and Cary Grant opened the door in a white bathrobe, white terry cloth bathrobe, and was like. Jennifer's waiting for you in my bedroom. I thought we would all watch together. My God. I will watch. Yeah, we watched my after school special schoolboy father um, in Carrie Grant's bedroom with uh, Carrie and his daughter, Jennifer. And when when it was over, he said, you remind me of a young Warren Beatty. And I was thrilled that War- then meeting Warren at three, then meeting Warren, which this is for another podcast, but I discovered at the end of it, my girlfriend would go up there. I'm going to tell the story. Fuck it. So um, my girlfriend uh, would go up there every like now and then to watch movies and lie by the pool. I was young and stupid enough to not care about that. And I would uh, I lived in Malibu. I didn't want to leave the beach. I certainly didn't want to go into the valley even to see Warren Beatty. But my girlfriend would. So finally, there's a night where we're driving around. She goes, oh, Warren's around and wants us to come up and watch a movie. And I was like, well, I always loved Warren Beatty. He was my hero. And part of me was a little nervous probably to go up, but I did. And so he answers the door in this amazing Mulholland mansion. There's not a stitch of furniture except the Oscar for Reds, which is on the mantle. And this is, he's just, he said, I, I'm so sorry. I, I, I just, I haven't, there's no furniture. There's no furniture because I... <laughs> I, 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 I was on a project and it just, it took years. I'm thinking, oh, you mean the project you just won the Oscar for like two weeks ago? Uh, I've heard of it. So we go downstairs and watch a Burt Reynolds double feature. We watched um, Stick and something else. And I remember Warren wanted me to sit next to him and he, he would be watching the He'd be watching going, mm, oh, interesting. Yeah. Oh, that's, oh, mm. oh, look at that. Yeah. Mm. And and I finally said, what is that? He goes, oh, he's, he's using a lot of long lenses. And I remember going, how does he know? Right. How can he tell by looking at the screen? What? what? This man is a, yeah. genius. a genius. And then and at a certain point, he said, I can eat some ice cream. And he left to get ice cream. And the girls left. And again, I'm dumb and young and stupid. And I stayed down in the theater. And... 
I'm waiting and waiting and my girlfriend's not coming back and I'm waiting and waiting. And the, the ingenue he was with, um, I believe it was Jan Smithers from WKRP in Cincinnati. Um, <laughs> and uh, they're not coming back. And finally, I go up to the kitchen and they're all eating ice cream and it gets very quiet. And I know they've been talking about me, clearly. And Warren's like, yeah, you know, you remind me so much of, of, of me and your girlfriend who at the time was Melissa Gilbert, reminds me of Natalie. And I thought, oh, there it is. That's the panty dropper line that he uses on every young actress. You remind me of Natalie. It's fucking over. At that point. Yeah, you're invisible. Over. It's over. So, and he goes, and you know, it's really, what's really funny is like you, um, I was a nobody and Natalie was a big star like Melissa. And Years later, of course, I became a big star. And um, this is even just very shortly after, before Natalie's death, I ran into her at an event. I said, I just have to ask you, we're both old and it doesn't matter anymore. But those weekends when you used to go to Frank Sinatra's house and you used to lie by the pool, what was really going on? And you know, Rob, she looked at me and she said, Warren, what do you think was going on? We were fucking and I instantly did the math and I knew exactly what was going on. And that, that from that moment on has been the, the ultimate meet your idol story. <laughs> Isn't that unbelievable? In a world when I, you meet so many people and the one that stands out was, um, you know, Norby Walters, you ever play in this card game, Norby Walters card game? Of course I do. Of course. Norby I, Walters yeah. has the card game. And I used to go to the card game many years ago when I was single, after I got divorced from my first wife, I'm out there, don't have nothing but time on my hands. I go to Norby Walters to play cards and it's always like that group of people. It's, uh, you know, Harvey Corman and, uh, uh, and all these guys from, and Burt Reynolds shows up one night. Oh, wow. And all these guys. But my favorite was this guy shows up in a white jumpsuit. He's in a white, he's very trim, very fit. He's in a white jumpsuit. Apparently he was, a, a, and I, he was, a, he was a degenerate gambler. He loved gambling. And he sits there, doesn't say a word the entire time. It's Don Adams. No. Don Adams is there in a white cream colored jumpsuit very trim and manicured and perfect. He doesn't say a word. And everyone's playing cards and everyone's waiting for that moment to arise. And I decide to seize the moment. And we're all laying there our cards. We're turning over our cards. And I turn over my cards and I go, I have a pair of sevens. <laughs> and everybody bursts out laughing except him. And then finally he looks at me and goes, very good. Very good. Very good. Like the, like the timing, you know, and like there's a guy who like, you know, like nobody made him laugh. He never, never laughed. My other favorite moment was when I did the movie, The Cooler. I got a phone call from Jerry Lewis. Oh, no way. Jerry Lewis called me on my phone through my office to tell me, he said, let me tell you something. I know these people. I know these people. And you were fucking fantastic. You were, I know these fucking people. I, I grew up with these fucking people in Vegas. Let me tell you. That's a great movie. And I'll end you with this. Am I, there was a moment in time where you and Billy were going to do the fighting Fitzgeralds. What the fuck are those guys? The, yeah. you, is this, am, the Sullivan am, brothers or something? Yeah. The Sullivan brothers. Right. And I, I think there was, somehow I got it in my head that I was going to be the fifth. There's one, there's one too many Sullivans and, and not enough bald ones. 
Right. And that I was, I was an, because I'm an honorary Fonda already. Peter made me an honorary Fonda because I reminded him of his dad. One of the great compliments. Yes. I'm still an honorary Baldwin. Well, you're I'm a half Baldwin. You're the Baldwin who we have the same father, but your mother is Eva Marie Saint. I've decided that's your <laughs> That makes sense. I'll take it. Uh, your, uh, yeah. mother's, your mother's Anne Margaret. Okay. Yes. Fucking A it is. I love that. Out there, in here. My, my God. God. Fucking amazing. Love you. Good Thank you. you. My love to you. Say hi to your wife. Ciao. I will for sure. I will. Bye-bye. Thanks. Oh, bye. Wow, I had so much fun. I could have talked to, to Alec for another 10 years. His impersonations, oh my God, they're insane. I mean, listen, what other podcast are you going to get a George Scott impersonation? And by the way, that's my favorite. It's not George C. Scott. George Scott. That's how you know it's all on the up and up. Oh, man. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I am I am beaming from ear to ear. That was amazing. Um, well... I will see you all on the next podcast. Thanks for listening to Literally with Rob Lowe. You have been listening to Literally with Rob Lowe. Produced and engineered by me, Devin Tory Bryant. Executive produced by Rob Lowe for Low Profile. Adam Sachs and Jeff Ross at Team Coco. And Colin Anderson and Chris Bannon at Stitcher. The supervising producer is Aaron Blaird. Talent producer, Jennifer Samples. Please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts, and remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a Team Coco production in association with Stitcher. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at the coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. 